This morning we'll continue in kind of a, a throwback series. Uh, when we started the church four years ago, the first thing we did was orient to this grand biblical story uh, over the course of the first five weeks when we gathered together. Last week, Kendall Vanderslice gave us insight into uh, the Genesis story of everything good that we see when we look around. It's a world filled with potential and made for flourishing and teeming, and she said eating. It's a world made from the overflow of the love and delight of God's own self. We, we have bodies made to eat. We are made to rely on the God who provides, and we're fitted for communion with creation and creator. This week, we find the continuation of that Genesis story and how that good creation has become corrupt. You, you might have gathered a theme in some of our songs today. It can be uncomfortable to sing about it. It's this thread of corruption that runs through everything, the environment that bears the scars of humanity's failure to live selflessly amongst the community of creation, broken homes and war and violence and suspicion and coercion. We don't really have enough time to keep the list going. Our corrupted psyches and mistaken collective memory together. The seemingly endless loop that's a downward spiral towards destruction and despair. Yeah, if your eyes work well, the world is really that broken. And yes, if you're honest enough with yourself, you're part of it. I'm part of it. I'm, we're part of the cause, but we're also victims. It's not, it's not either or, it's and. So welcome to the world as we know it. God's good world. God actually said very good. Corrupted by sin and death. It's this very good world gone wrong that Lisa Sharon Harper, who's an author, writes that Genesis 3, that Matthew's about to read for us, paints this scenario that is the hinge point of history. Humanity grasps at its own peace at the expense of the peace of all. The relationships that were declared tov meod, very good in Hebrew, in the beginning are all decimated. Here lies the wreckage of that fateful moment of original sin, the moment when humanity chose not to trust God's way to peace. Instead, humanity chose its own way. The consequences of humanity's kind of dominion, the kind of rule that governs with self-interest above the interest of others, are sin, separation, and death. Matthew's going to come and read our story from the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Let us hear God's word together. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat of the fruit of, of the garden's trees but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, 
Don't eat from it, and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful, with delicious food, and that the tree would provide wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Matthew. So we linked this week with last week with that last phrase at the end of chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We often think of shame, especially having to do with our own nakedness, as that kind of guilty feeling that causes us to retreat. We either isolate ourselves because we don't feel like we're enough, or we throw ourselves at people and things and careers and distractions so that we don't have to deal with this deep-seated sense that we're just not good enough. We're not beautiful enough. We're not smart enough. We're not enough, enough. But shame is a little more than this in like the grand biblical picture. What Adam and Eve did, uh, what Adam and Eve didn't have, but then gained through their disobedience. It's not just kind of this shameful pity party. No, the Bible defines shame more in terms of being or feeling abandoned by God. It's strung out on a limb, hemmed in by enemies. Read the Psalms. You feel vulnerable with no help coming. Like Psalm 89 or Psalm 25. I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Nor let my, let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause because there's distance between them and God. Adam and Eve were with God. They were clothed with God's grace and love and care. It's only then when they stopped taking God at God's word, that very word that created them, that things start to unravel. That sin enters the world and death along with it. They begin to feel the shame of being exposed, feeling naked. In this sin, I really like sometimes words that we hear so much kind of lose their currency with us. That they don't have their power. We tune out to them. So I really like the way this British writer, Francis Spufford, uh, refers to sin in his book. He, he refers to it, and I'll, I'll edit this a little bit for, for y'all. Um, but he calls it the H-P-T-F-T-U, the human propensity to foul things up. And he doesn't say foul, right? This kind of sin, this human propensity to foul things up takes many forms. It kind of has different trajectories, too. Either way you talk about sin, uh, like another, another way to talk about sin, and we talked about this in our planning meeting, is, is like a wicked problem. Does anyone know that terminology, a wicked problem? Is anyone in like, 
like problem management or um, social planning. Like wicked there is not like evil per se. It's also not like how Bostonians use the term wicked. Um, a great quantity, right? Um, <coughs> a problem is wicked when it resists a solution, when it compounds when you start to work at it. You throw your best idea and your best effort at something and it keeps getting worse. Maybe it even accelerates and getting worse. You start to pull one thread or pick at it and the whole sweater comes undone. The wicked problem started in the garden with Adam and Eve's disobedience, but it's continued to spiral and reach and accelerate and gain steam. Even our best methods for cure are infected with the disease. That's why technology just speeds us up. We're just getting better at killing people, <laughs> more efficient at sinning. Even a righteous response, like, again, our best intent, can build into self-righteousness. We've seen this. We've done this. We've lived this, right? So then we're left kind of pinballing back and forth between things we think might make us better. We continue to switch out leaves and thread and various sewing techniques because we're trying to stitch together something to cover our naked shame. But it keeps falling apart or we outgrow it. <laughs> or it just... We, we keep getting exposed. Maybe, maybe our best way to deal with that is by just exposing others, right? If, if everyone's looking at them, they won't see us. We continue to be hurt even as we continue to hurt others. And as with most wicked problems, it can be tempting to just despair, to disengage, to throw your hands up and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll die, right? I think um, another way to talk about this um, that I've found helpful, and, and we've used some of this before and, and also in our baptism class, is the idea um, that Jeremiah prayed this earlier, uh, that we're made in God's image. This is just last week, last chapter. And so part of what that entails, Steve, I think there's a picture. Part of that entails that we're almost like this tilted mirror situated between God and creation, so that we take creation as creaturely ones and we gather creation's praise of this is when things are working right. This is when we're doing our job, our vocation, what we're called to do and be. We're gathering creation's praise up and we're reflecting it back to God. We're, we're joining creation's choir in praising God. And we're also, as ones made in God's image, <coughs> We're, we're filling in for God as God's envoys, as God's ministers of reconciliation. And we're bearing that responsibility and that um, calling towards creation. This is when God says, be fruitful and multiply. Um, subdue um, the earth. Uh, garden this creation. And so when it's all working right, there's no loss of fidelity in any of this. It's this beautiful reflection, this beautiful imaging. But then we have this cracked icon, this cracked mirror. And anyone knows that when you shine light at a cracked mirror, it looks like a disco ball, right? It, 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 it's gone completely wrong, and it's no longer a mirror. And it looks something like this. And it's just misfiring everywhere. Um, every once in a while, you get it right. 
<laughs> but <laughs> mostly, um, all of the angles are wrong. All of the, it, you get a funhouse mirror that is, is a distorted picture. And so oftentimes when people are reacting against God, it's because they're looking at God's people and seeing a massively distorted picture of who God is. You encounter a neighbor who reacts violently against who God is, ask them who they think God is, and that's probably not who God is, right? And, and likewise, this, this kind of trickles down to creation in the ways that we abuse uh, creatures and the vulnerable maybe the most vulnerable part of creation are, is non-animate creation, in which we just kill and steal and destroy um, in the name of, of ruling and gardening. And these, these ways that this cracked icon, this cracked image misfires, kind of continues in, in four, um, four main areas, and the Apostle Paul describes each of these things. First, that we're prideful. Adam and Eve's mistake was the pride of thinking that they knew better than God. Uh, Serpent didn't do a whole lot of work here. (laughs) Uh, Just a little nudge, and they were ready uh, to step in that for themselves. The, The sad irony for them and for us is that they elected for the very shame that they got. And strangely, God, in God's grace, gives us exactly what we opt for. They disobeyed God and failed to submit to what God wanted for them, to trust in his care, and he backs off a a little bit. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he says, pride leads to every other vice. This is kind of the bedrock. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It's pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the beginning of the world. And part of God's strange mercy is that when we trust in him as Lord, it destroys the illusions of who we are. If, if God is Lord, then we are not. It, it, it's a, a pride crusher, and we'll continue to be scandalized by that because, again, God is, is not going to abuse us in this scheme. There's going to be this, this working with, this, this non-coercion, this joy. So Paul says in Romans 3, where, then, is boasting? It's gone. It's excluded. Or in Galatians 6, may I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You can see how, cry, how pride gets busted in a life with God. Another outlet of this cracked icon is that we're selfish. Um, early theologians like to talk about us being bent in on ourselves. We navel gaze. We only think primarily about ourselves. And you can read this into Darwin or Marx or Freud and see a world taking shape that always wants to control for its own survival. Whether it's through violence and greed and coercion or sexual desires that are malformed that they rule us. Like, you, you can see all these things. And you, I guarantee you, once you become a parent, you especially see all these things because you see yourself reflected back to you. And as your kids start to come at age, they start to have opinions about things, right? And and you wonder, how did this perfect little one who I have done everything to shelter and keep them from these evil impulses, how did they just say that to me? And why are they yelling at me constantly, right? And Romans 8 talks a little bit about this. Talks about those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. 
those who live in accordance to the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. And so again, this life with God reverses some of, of this curse and opens us back out to God instead of closing us down on ourselves. Another byproduct of this is that we're divided. And I, I don't just mean culturally divided. We're divided even in ourselves. We don't really know what we want. We're not really all that logical. We'd like to think that if we could just know the good, we'd do the good. We'd like to think that if the spouse that we just argued with, if, they, if, if she could just hear a recording of her voice played back, it would all be clear, and we'd have this all resolved. Or, 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 or like this this um, uh, hearing and, and trial that we just had. We like to think that there would be some moment where the truth would just come out and, and both sides would agree, like, oh, this is exactly what happened, and that was never going to happen in that. We're so divided even in ourselves, um, and, and, and we're so misfiring on what we even desire that we don't even often know what is forming us. I remember that old... Um, TV commercial, maybe I'm dating myself here, but it would come on the screen and say, knowing is half the battle. You remember that? Well, there's still another 50% of the battle, even if you know, and that's like doing and desiring and being formed into the kind of person that would do good. And we can't do that for ourselves. And Romans 7 says, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. Do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, I do not want to do. And I keep on doing this. Now, I do what I do not want to do, and it's no longer I who do it, but it's a sin living in me that does it. Sin does this to us. It, it, it divides us even in ourselves. And sin also enslaves. Um, there's this, this kind of common cultural term called Stockholm Syndrome, and that, that happened in 1973. There was a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, and there were all these hostages. It lasted six days. When they finally came in and released these captives, they didn't want to be released, and they didn't want anything bad to happen to their captors. They've grown to love their captors. They refused help. They they defended the criminals. They wouldn't testify against the very people who put their lives in danger. This surely describes kind of what sin is capable of doing to us. We start to love the thing that is abusing us. We go back to sin like an abusive spouse and apologize for them when they're hurting us, when they're threatening to kill us. Or, or, or like how a sex worker who would never dream of living the life they now participate in can't really truly ever want to get out. They can't imagine a way out. This is where imagination comes in, because that's just the way things are. They sin, but also maybe even more so, sin has them. Romans 6 says that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The only way, through, the only way out of sin is through death to sin. So this is pretty bleak. <laughs> sin is inevitable. Sin, sin is terminal, and, and it's kind of, we should feel bad about this, but it's also kind of the world is in a state of sin, no offense. <laughs> We're all in this together. We haven't even scratched the surface of the ways that our brokenness is part of a vast network of brokenness throughout all creation, our environment, systems of government, 
good things gone awry. How creation itself groans, Scripture says, with labor pains towards liberation from sin and death. So often we've over-theologized these things, this statement of the wages of sin and death, when in all actuality it's not hard to see the math playing out. The real result of sin is death. If you go down that road of pride and selfishness and dividedness and enslavement, you'll die. It's not good for you. For all these things that are very good, this is not good. We see all this in our lives. Like, I wonder, I would never pull this, like, the things in your own life and the things in other people's lives that that maybe one of those uh, bullet points kind of pinged for you. We also see this in our stories that we tell, kind of culturally. I think we're living in the golden age of, like, prestige television right now, and I love it because we're getting these amazing, truthful, honest stories. Some of the best stories available to us are kind of these anti-hero stories that we can actually see ourselves in. Some, someone we hate to admit that we like, because in so many ways we're repulsed by them, who they are and who they're be- becoming. Like It's like the Don Draper syndrome, right? Like, gosh, we hate Don Draper. Man, he's so awesome, right? <coughs> They're, these stories are, are more true and they're more interesting even like because of their self and other destructiveness. We get to see it. It's kind of low stakes for us to look on. Um, and they're way better and more engrossing than like the old school stories of like the good guys that wear the white hats and the bad guys that wear the black hats. We're in this world that's come of age that now there's no white hats. There's no pure black hats, our villains, like our lives, have become much more gray. Now you can be a villain who is also the protagonist in these shows. Chuck Klosterman is like this cultural writer. He says, in any situation, the villain is the person who knows the most but cares the least. This makes for great television. So some of my really favorite television shows in the last few years have been Breaking Bad and then there's a spinoff prequel called Better Call Saul. And the, and the first show is about this Kim teacher, Walter White, who's this really unsuspecting uh, high school teacher, and he gets a terminal diagnosis and begins this wicked cycle of breaking bad. Like, he becomes this southwestern methamphetamine kingpin. And this show is brutal. I've had so many friends that are like, I can't believe you can still watch that. That show is not good for me. It is brutal. And it is. Like we see every part of Walter White's life transform into something else. And it all falls apart. Like it all began with kind of a a relatively pure idea of him seeing a future for his family beyond the reach of his current vocation. And so he made this choice towards this lifestyle with the positive idea of helping them. He reached beyond where he was. Much like Adam and Eve's grasping at something that was, was available to him but should not have been taken. So we, then we see this downward spiral which kills, steals, and destroys both the one sinning and all those that are caught in sin's thrall. And then Walter White gets a new name. He becomes this alter ego, Heisenberg. He even has a hat for it, you know? And that's an amazing touch because it's an ode 
to the real life founder of quantum mechanics, this Nazi scientist, Werner Heisenberg. And when he started developing these technologies, they weren't for bad, they were for good. It was, it was a heap of, of a pile of basically energy producing matter. And then he actually reacted with horror that this would be weaponized to, to make things like atomic bombs. Uh, some transcripts even show that him and some of his fellow scientists were actually relieved that the Allies won World War II um, because these discoveries got away from them. He accidentally broke bad, like actual Heisenberg. The other show, Better Call Saul, which is still running, and man, it's so good. But I think it's, I think it's maybe even more, it's not nearly as brutal, but it's even more emotionally upsetting. It shows like the origin story of this really sleazy lawyer, Saul Goodman. Say that name and you'll get the joke. Saul Goodman. Saul Goodman, right? Um, this show is like slow and personal and really wonderfully written and acted. And so we see this lovable loser, Jimmy McGill, slowly transform into this law-bending con man of con men. And what's so, setting, what's so upsetting is that we know the end because we've seen Breaking Bad. We know what he turns into. We've known Saul in his like flamboyant suits and the way he bends the truth, but the evolution towards that is just not pretty. Like we're haunted by all the things that we know about him in the future that um, we don't know what happens to his wonderful girlfriend, Kim Wexler, or his condescending and vindictive brother, Chuck, because they're not in Breaking Bad. They're not in the end, so something happens to them, and it's just dreadful seeing how this is all going to fall apart. Show is like a slow, mundane march towards Saul's sad, selfish future. We see the ways that he discerns his vocation, figures out what he should do based on what he's good at, which is mostly conning people, right? And Sometimes there's honorable, good ways that per, are presented to him, and he even takes some of those routes, but then realizes really fast that the world doesn't really reward righteousness, and then he'll take the easier thing, right? Uh, he's, he's kind of too weak or even too wounded or misguided to not give in to the easy, obviously bad thing. And Jimmy, So Jimmy doesn't really break bad. That would be an inappropriate way to title the show, he kind of devolves. It's a slow veer off the right track, rather than like a violent jerk of the wheel. But all these mechanisms of the wicked problem still hold. Every time he makes one decision, it affects a myriad of others and other people in his lives that he hurts. I preached <coughs> a version of this sermon four years ago kind of the same outline, and I'll tell you, you'd think um, it would be kind of the phenomenon of like you come in to um, planting a church and in, into this neighborhood with a new set of people to do ministry with, and you're really kind of, um, uh, you know, excited and clear and black and white and focused, and, and you might think over time that some of those lines would blur and you would back off, kind of, especially a sermon about sin. And you think, like, oh, that's just the way things are. Um, you know, they're not, they're responsible for that. It's hurting. But I'll tell you what, the longer that we've been here, the, the more I've been able to see sin, how it works. It's not just sin we do, this is sin we're caught into. 
So hear me now, I'm not trying to say that you or this neighborhood or, or even me are worse than I thought when we started or that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's worse than it was four years ago, but that when you walk closely and consistently and honestly and you dwell with and know people and places, you see these cycles of sin play out even more deeply. They're, they're maybe more upsetting. The hurt is more visceral and real. Some of these effects in brokenness of sin that I, I wouldn't have even had eyes for four years ago are, are the causing of people to be without a place. We're seeing that in our, in our world. We're seeing that in our neighborhood, displacing people. And if you want to read more about how sin displaces, Gen Willie Jennings writes wonderfully about this. Um, I've seen up close and, and walked with people through how addiction and poverty and mental health and loneliness are all really like complicatedly tangled up in our neighbors and even in our church. Uh, and it's not just one thing, it's a, it's a wicked problem. Seen how political polarization and ideologies and self-righteousness kind of shapeshift and put a wedge between us. That's, again, a wicked problem. Start to unravel that. I've seen how us young adults in this kind of moment where we get to figure out what sort of real adults we want to be, right? We can kind of either choose to rebel against who we were or how we were raised or like steadfastly cling to things in order to please someone or fit in. And either choice can choose someone or something over being faithful to the God who chose you and is calling you. Had no idea. It wasn't even on my radar that white like white supremacy, not only demeans everyone who doesn't fit some idolatrous paradigm, but it also wrecks the image of God in those who should be humbly gathering creation's praise and presenting it back to God. Instead, they, they instead we choose to bottleneck this praise and glory for ourselves. Can you see we have a heap of wicked problems on our hands? right in our backyard, right in our front yard. <laughs> so all this talk about wicked problems and busted icons can seem really bleak. Again, it's tempting to jump forward, to move past, to spackle over these cracks towards healing. So we just want resolution. Assuming that God can't or won't work with like our damaged goods. But I'm reminded of the line from Leonard Cohn's anthem. There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. It's in the cracks. It's through the cracks. That God begin, begins to bring hope. This week, um, I found this poem, and it is from Anna Gasmarian posted it. She always posts really great poems, and it's from this poet named Natalie Diaz. She's a contemporary Mojave American poet who teaches and it's called The Beauty of Busted Fruit. And I really wanted to share it with you because I feel like this, this greatly voices um, where we're at with this. Since when we were children, we traced our knees, shins, and elbows for the slightest hint of wound, searched for them with, uh, with any, for any sad red-blue scab marking us both victim and survivor. All this before we knew that some wounds can't heal 
Before we knew the jagged scars of great-grandmother's amputated legs, the way a rock can split a man's head open to its red syrup like a watermelon, the way a brother can pick at his own skin for snakes and spiders only he can see. Maybe you have grown out of yours. Maybe you no longer haul those wounds with you onto every bus through every side street of a new town. Maybe you've never set them rocking on the, the lamplight of a nightstand but beside a stranger's bed, carrying your own hurt like two cracked pomegranates because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit, the bright stain it will leave on your lips, the way it will make people want to kiss you. Despite, but also exactly in our cracked icons, our wicked problems and our busted fruit, despite the fact that we leave God, ignore God, or try to replace God, God doesn't leave us. God looks at us with the bright stain of sin and hurt on our lips and wants to kiss us. Longs, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, to embrace us. Doesn't leave us in the shame of our abandonment, but clothes us in mercy. In God's son, Jesus, we're to clothe ourselves in Christ. God gives us new life and the possibility of reconciliation with God, with the very God that we've walked away from. I'm kind of going to leave you guys hanging a little here. Because in the next several weeks, we'll dive further into God's plan for embrace, this rescue plan for all of creation in which we're included. We'll unfold how through community in Christ on the cross, God brings about new creation. That icon is healed. How, as Romans 5, uh, Romans 5 puts it, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? So it's still my prayer that we, as we form and grow as Oak Church, that will be a community that mourns sin and its effects. I prayed this four years ago. I'm still praying it, both out there and in here. In here. That we'll struggle together in honesty, without shame, as we grow nearer and nearer to our Creator and our Redeemer. That we'll be in the business of breaking the bondages of slavery that are eating us and our neighbors alive. That will be in a place of that will be a place of freedom and thriving. That will find fellowship in the fact that we're we're all part of the disease, but in Christ we've been cured and we've also been called to be part of the cure with and for each other in this world. Can you guys pray with me. Lord, help us continue, continue to be more and more aware of sin in this world. It's exhausting because it's everywhere we look, and it's, it's depressing because we look in the mirror and we see 
how broken and worn down and tired we are, um, how hurt we are from others and, and the effects of, of, of the hurt we cause on others that damages us. Lord, help us share in Jesus' sufferings so we might share in his healing. Help us be a place um, that understands the logic of sin well so we can, can break that logic. We can witness to the way that Christ has broken that logic. We can forward to a future of healing and figure out a way, um, each step of the way, how we get there by healing. Fill us with your spirit for this, that we might be courageous and honest and hopeful. We thank you for, for making that possible, for your mercy. We continue to say that we need mercy. Amen.